Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining me here on Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I am a yoga teacher with many years of experience, a certified personal trainer, and an entrepreneur. My mission is to show you how to get confident, speak clearly, feel authentic, grow your impact, earn your worth, and build a community. For years, I've been working with teachers in my signature program, the Yoga Anatomy Blueprint Learning Program, and I've seen so many teachers transform, and I can help you get there too. On the podcast, you'll hear anatomy lessons, stories from teachers, interviews with others in the field, and a dose of personal development. In addition to the podcast, don't forget to also follow me on Instagram and TikTok for daily videos on teaching topics. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. Let's get into today's episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, and this is episode 213. So I'm so glad you're here. Welcome to another episode. I am recording here from my home, as I usually do in Boston. Did you know that I actually, when I started this podcast back in 2017, I used to go to this place called the Podcast Garage here in Boston. And um, it was this cute little garage type structure where they had a recording studio. And I thought, oh, if I'm going to do a podcast. I really need to go to an official place with official audio uh, equipment and, and all of this. And I think I paid probably $100 an hour. And it took me about an hour to record each episode. Maybe, episode, maybe it was a little bit less. But um, now, I mean, that lasted probably about six months. And then I realized I can, I can literally just record from my laptop. Uh, so for those for for you out there, if you're thinking of starting a podcast about something you love, something you want to share, yoga teaching, a topic about yoga teaching, you can literally do a podcast right from your laptop. And and so just you know, as you're listening here, just know that I just go into um, a small space in my house so the audio doesn't get lost in the big room. And I just open the laptop and record. I don't know if I should be telling you that. Did you think I was in a fancy recording studio? I definitely am not. Now I do have some other mics that I have purchased in the past. Um, I don't even use them. I know sometimes when you see people, uh, pictures of them uh, recording their shows, they have all these fancy headsets on and everything. I have none of that. So it's really easy. I just wanted to share that with you and share a little behind the scenes as well. So I am recording this on November 10th, 2022. This will go live on November 14th, 2022. So you're either listening on November 14th, if you're a super fan and you listen to the show on the day it comes out or sometime after that. Now, I do want to start out by mentioning if you do listen to this show, if you are listening to this show, either the 14th or the 15th or the morning Eastern time of the 16th, I am doing my monthly free workshop on the 16th of this month. And it's about a really cool topic, one that doesn't get talked about, I don't think nearly enough. And it has to do with building your confidence as a teacher. And I know, of course, because I specialize in anatomy, most of my workshops cover topics around anatomy and how you can easily understand it and bring it into your teaching. This particular episode or this particular workshop is going to kind of come at anatomy from a different perspective because absolutely, you know, the focus of this workshop is building your confidence and absolutely underneath that is a need to really understand some fundamental anatomical principles. Because let's face it, if you're teaching and you don't understand anatomy, it's really hard to fake it <laughs> because you are teaching movement. So that's why I say it's really important that that be the underpinning. However, there are a lot of other things that you can do outside of just this concept of, of learning some of these fundamental anatomical principles to build your confidence. And I really wanted to share those, to have that discussion, 
because I think it's so central to effective teaching. Let's face it, if you go into the room and you're really, really nervous, you're consumed by your own experience. And that is absolutely the worst place to be in when you are teaching. The best mental place to be in when you're teaching is when you're externally focused, which quite frankly, for a lot of people, a lot of yoga teachers kind of runs contrary to a lot of the messaging we hear, which is more of that introspective messaging, you know, being tuned in and tuning out what's happening outside of you. And of course, the importance of meditation. And when you look at the eight limbs, you know, the eight limbs are moving you more towards that inner focus. And all of that is so important. And it's actually kind of the paradox of yoga as a discipline. And when you study, you know, of course, the fundamentals of yoga in Buddhism and, and, and the history of, of the practice, not just the asana, but the meditation and moving towards enlightenment, it of course focuses on the inner, focusing on the inner and the importance of the individual in doing that. However, when you're teaching, you need to be focused on the outer, what's happening in front of you, who is in front of you, what are they doing? What's, you know, kind of something that you're seeing that prompts you to say something in your cues that matches the moment. And the paradox here is the more centered you are, the more outwardly focused you can be and not lose your way. And I think, you know, as you're listening, you can probably relate as a yoga teacher to losing your way when you're teaching. And that experience of getting caught up in your inner thoughts and not feeling connected to your class. And that's what I mean by the paradox. When you do the work, when you're not teaching to turn inward, to learn more about yourself, to be uh, more inwardly focused, you build inner resiliency and you are then able when you go into the studio to be outwardly focused so that you can help your students. So I sort of liken it to, you know, especially because the holidays are coming up and so many things just start to get busier, the schedules get busier. Uh, and certainly when you go out into the world, when you go to get coffee, when you go to the grocery store, when you go to the department store or your local small businesses, everything just has more people. So I always think in those moments of me kind of moving through those different environments, almost with like a bubble around me. So I can be in the busyness, I can be in the crowds, and at the same time, I can still be centered. And so that focus or ability to focus inwardly when all around, around you is chaos, it comes from the, the investment you make when you're alone in building that inner resiliency and that inner centeredness. And you can turn that on when you need it. But make no mistake about it, when you are teaching, <laughs> the focus needs to be outward. So um, this is going to be a big part of the conversation I'll be having in my workshop next week. And to register for that, you can go to the website, the link is right on the events page. My website is barebonesyoga.com. You can DM me on Instagram. I'll send you the registration page. I'll be posting about it over the next several days uh, in my Instagram stories on Facebook. And if you go on my Instagram page, you'll see right in my profile, there's a link, which is a special store that I've set up for yoga teachers right off my Instagram profile. And just tip for you, I actually have one of my courses, my mini course on sale in that link. It's not even on sale on my website. So I'm giving you an incentive to check out that link in my Instagram. You'll see right under my name, right under my description, there is a link, it says stand store. And when you click that link, you'll see the registration for the workshop and you'll always see one or two opportunities to grow as a teacher. So one of the things will always be a free complimentary download, a tip sheet, a guide, something that you can just easily grab that will help you grow in some way. The other thing right now I'm promoting my mini course 
and I'm selling it for just $19. So, I mean, geez, really, really inexpensive. And the benefit, what you'll gain by getting that mini course is you'll see my patented, I don't want to say patented, my trademark step-by-step um, -step process for breaking down anatomy into the key pieces you need to know. And so if you're thinking at some point in the future, you want to work with me one-on-one -on -one and really um, up-level your teaching to be able to have these fundamentals of anatomy just within you, just in your knowledge base. And you're curious as to, well, what's different about working with Karen? How does she break down this subject? You know, I've been overwhelmed by it for so long. What makes her program different? This is how you can find out because the mini course mirrors the steps in my signature program, the Yoga Anatomy Blueprint Learning Program. And so you'll get a look in to what are the steps that I'll be going through when I'm in Karen's program. So that's just 19 bucks. You can get it right on the link on my Instagram profile. And you'll also see the sign up for the work, uh, for the workshop there as well. So the other thing I wanted to mention, and maybe I'll do this more as a regular thing is I want to mention two things I am, uh, doing what I'm watching and what I'm reading. And I am currently obsessed with two shows. One is called Searching for Italy, which is, you can get it on On Demand. It's produced by CNN, the news network, and it's hosted by Stanley Tucci, the actor. He is Italian, as he says, Italian on both sides. He says that on the show. And it's 20 episodes all about different places he traveled to in Italy. Now, if you don't know, I am Italian. My great, great grandparents grew up in Sicily. So if you are listening to this and you live in Italy, would you please contact me because I need some insider tips on travel to Italy. Anyway, uh, so I'm obsessed with Italy. It's in my heritage. I grew up uh, in a very strong Italian-American family. My mother's side is Sicilian. My father's side is German. That's why my last name is Fabian and Italian, but from the Northern Italy side. So my memories of growing up involve Christmases where we would have meat ravioli with my father's grandmother. And then we would go on Christmas day, that'd be Christmas Eve. On Christmas day, we would go to my nanny, which is my Sicilian grandmother, and she would serve us lasagna and turkey. <laughs> And my mother is an amazing cook. Um, everything from scratch, all of the Italian-American favorites, the lasagna, the eggplant parm, the baked ziti, the stuffed shells, the roasted chicken, the salmon, all of that. And she makes the most incredible sauce, red sauce. And so I'm obsessed with that show because I'm really sort of embarrassed to say I've never been to Italy. I've actually over the past several years, taken some time back from traveling, not by my own choice. Certainly COVID uh, and the pandemic had an impact, but um, I've really let some things get in the way of me and my passion for travel. And that's no longer going to happen. I did a little bit of travel this year in 2022, but 2023, I'm going all out. So uh, Italy's on my list. So this show is fantastic. It's a blend of both travel and um, cooking. And if you are a fan of Anthony Bourdain, rest in peace. I am such a huge fan of Anthony Bourdain. I'm actually sort of really furious that this recent book has come out, which sort of disparages his background um, and all that happened to him towards the end. Anyway, I loved that show, um, Parts Unknown. And I really love that CNN has produced this Stanley Tucci show. And to be quite honest, I really didn't know Stanley Tucci as an actor before this show. I mean, I remember him from um, when he was in the movie with Meryl Streep. Oh God, I'm blanking on the name where she was the fashion person. And um, Anne Hathaway was in it. What the heck is the name? Anyway, he is just fabulous. And the fact that he's Italian and the photography is just unbelievable. The filming, it, it is like you can just walk into the TV and you'll be in Italy. So I would highly recommend that. The other show I'm watching, which I am 
absolutely loving and I have just begun and there's three seasons. So I love that I have so many episodes to go through is the lost kitchen. If you've never heard of the lost kitchen, the lost kitchen is owned by Erin French. She is a cook. She doesn't call herself a chef. She is a cook. She grew up in uh, Maine in a town called Freedom, Maine. And Sandy, if you're listening to this shout out, I uh, have a, uh, um, a yoga teacher who I've gone back and forth with on Instagram multiple times. She lives in Maine and she loves, she loves the show. So we've talked back and forth about it. And, um, and Freedom, Maine is a really small town. Erin grew up in Freedom, Maine and her dad owned kind of a breakfast place, side of the road, very rural part of Freedom. In fact, Freedom, Maine by her own account just has a post office and a general store and that's it. And I live in Boston. I've been to Maine many, many times, but I've never been to Freedom, but I have been to different parts of Maine. And I know that there are a lot of small towns there. So Erin grew up in a family where her dad was a cook and had a restaurant. She ended up going through a whole bunch of ups and downs in her life, more than I could even describe. In fact, to the point where she, when she put out her book a couple of years ago, um, I, it's not called The Lost Kitchen. It's called, hang on, I'm just going to take a peek because I'm in my room with my books. Uh, oh, it's called Finding Freedom, which is kind of a play on words because she's from freedom, but she also personally needed to find freedom from a lot of the challenges and struggles that she was experiencing in her life. And when I was reading her book, I had to sort of put it down because a lot of what she went through, it wasn't that it was triggering for me. It's just that it was really, it was really painful to read. And now that I'm watching the show, I want to go back and finish reading the book. The show, um, it's no surprise that she got a show because her restaurant, which is in a mill in the middle of Freedom, Maine, only is about 50 seats. And she had a history of creating these dinner party type things for friends. So it was more than a restaurant where you make reservations and you go and you eat at whatever time you eat at. This is more like, imagine you're going to a restaurant, but everybody shows up at the same time and everybody's going to get served the same thing. So it's basically like going to a dinner party, but you only know the person you're going with. You don't know anybody else. And so she still runs it like that. So it's sort of a blend of restaurant and catering. And I've done a lot of personal chef work over the years, so I can relate to, to doing this sort of event. And, um, and so her, re her restaurant, I'll call it a restaurant, but understand the experiences dinner party became so popular that she had to transition to a process where she only accepted reservations and she still does this by postcard. So you send a postcard to the post office in Freedom, Maine, and she goes with boxes and collects all these postcards, thousands of postcards from all over the world. And she does a postcard pull and then calls people to let them know that they have a seat. So I won't go into it more if you're hating this whole sidebar, apologies, but if you're loving it, you will love this show. And this particular episode I'm doing right here of the podcast is going to piggyback on something that I've been inspired to emphasize here on the show, which has to do with yoga teaching. So I sort of have a, a really good reason for going into Aaron French and the show, The Lost Kitchen, because it's going to directly relate to the subject we're going to talk about today. And make no mistake about it, you know, when you're watching a show you love, when you're reading a book you love, look for those inspirations that you can relate to yoga teaching because they are always out there. Another um, thing that I watch that always inspires me for yoga teaching is American Idol. Now you may hate American Idol, so apologies if you do. However, if you're sort of lukewarm or you love it or are a super fan like me, you will love this particular snippet of conversation about it. And the reason that I say you can be inspired by things you watch and things you read as a teacher is because there are common themes that we as teachers face. There are common challenges that we as teachers work through. There are common threads around ways to inspire people when you show up fully and Make no effing mistake about it, whether it's Aaron French on her show, Stanley Tucci on his show, 
the contestants on American Idol, that is what they are doing. They are showing up for other people fearlessly. And most certainly on American Idol, it's a perfect illustration of that. And I've talked about American Idol on this show, on my show here, multiple times before, especially when the season starts, uh, which FYI, it starts in February, um, because there's so many examples of young people who have never performed in public getting up there in front of you know, whoever the judges are, Lionel Richie, Katy Perry, Luke Bryan, seasoned entertainers, and they get up there and they're from small towns anywhere in the United States and they fucking crush it. And when you think about the, the nerves that they must have, and see, this is what I mean about opening your eyes and looking for opportunities to be inspired, to open that inner window in your own heart to these things that can inspire your teaching. This is a source of confidence. This is a source of inspiration. This is a source of zone of genius excellence that you can allow yourself to feel so that you can bring it into the studio and knock the socks off your students. So show them, shows I'm watching Lost Kitchen and, um, and Searching for Italy and, and Reason Why. And then the final thing is something I am reading. I am currently reading a book called The Big Leap by, I believe it's Gay Hendricks. And he, it's a he, he has written this book several years ago. However, it's got some really good uh, reviews. Um, a, a number of people, one of the people I actually recognized that uh, endorsed it was Mariel Hemingway. And um, this is a story, I'm sorry, this is a book about personal growth. And the big leap refers to making that leap from just living in an ordinary space, in an ordinary way, to really living in your zone of genius and not allowing yourself or resisting the urge to constantly be pulled back into just mediocrity. Now that's a very general summary of what the book's about. I'm gonna give you just one example that I can totally relate to. And I just read this in the book and it had to do with this woman he was seeing and he's a consultant. He's not a therapist, he's a consultant. However, because he has such amazing insight, it seems that he does have some clients that he works with and it, it looks and feels to me as a former social worker as a therapeutic intervention. However, I, I know because he doesn't have any clinical qualifications, he's not showing it, he's not advertising it as therapy. Anyway, he met with this woman and she is an author and she was frustrated because she was unable to ever get to writing on a daily basis. And when he asked her why not, she was saying how she had all these things she needed to do every day, get the kids ready for school, do all these chores around the house, do grocery shopping. She called it infrastructure work. Now I can totally relate to this because when my boyfriend bought the house we now live in, in January of 2021, my life completely 100% flipped and I did not expect it. I was just thinking surfacey, like, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to live in a nice place. I was living in a 300 square foot apartment in the back bay of Boston. Now I'm going to live in a three-story home. It's going to be fantastic. It is fantastic, but it's a lot of work. And we don't even have a family. It's just me and Ben and Coco, our dog. But <laughs> I would say, number one, I am definitely the person that takes care of the house infrastructure. And number two, it's probably about 30% of every day between some kind of cleaning, some kind of grocery shopping, yada, yada. I'm sure you can relate, especially if you're listening and you're a woman and you have, are the head of household from that perspective. So in this story of this woman that he was working with, she was a writer and she was lamenting to him that she never had any time to write anymore because she just had all these things she needed to do. And he was pressing her and he was saying, why can't you make time for your writing? And she just kept bringing up all these excuses around how everybody in her family depended upon her to take care of all this stuff. And so he simply suggested, why don't you just switch your schedule so that every day, once you get the kids off to school and your husband leaves for work, 
the first thing you're going to do is you're going to spend an hour writing. And she could not imagine that happening. She had this inner urge to, you know, vacuum and do loads of laundry and go to the grocery store. And I can relate to that because that is me. However, he basically said to her, you know, you have the choice as to whether or not you want to do this. You can decide to put your writing first, but if you continue to succumb to this inner urge to feed the fact that you want to also be in charge of all this housing infrastructure task stuff, you're never going to get your writing done. So just tell that inner voice, thank you for letting me know I have stuff that I need to do around the house, but I'm going to sit down right now for 60 minutes and write. And so she described in follow-up sessions, or I think maybe he said they didn't have a follow-up session, but she got back to him and gave him an update and basically described that there were fits and starts to this, but she eventually got herself to the point where she could sit down even though that inner voice was saying, do these tasks around the house, she could say no to that inner voice and yes to her writing. And it was through that consistent um, kind of reworking that she was able to change her patterns. And a lot of it for her was tied to, she wanted to be seen in her family as this doer. She felt an obligation to her husband. She felt an obligation to her kids. But what about the obligation to herself? And this is what I mean about zone of genius and being inspired. If you have no commitment to yourself and always put yourself last, you're never going to live in that zone of genius. You're never going to teach in that zone of genius. You're never going to travel to do the things you want to do because you're always putting your needs second, third, or fourth. So I can certainly say from personal experience, and when I read this in the book, it was very reassuring to me because as I said, when I moved to this new place with Ben in January, 2021, my schedule really flipped. And for the first year that we lived here, I wasn't, I was really struggling to keep up with all the things I wanted to do for myself. And I'm not just talking all of my routine around personal health and wellness, but all the things I love to do for my business, like recording my podcast episodes, like I'm doing here, making my social media um, posts, doing those videos on Instagram. I love doing those. Uh, just all the things that involve preparing for my monthly workshops, coaching the teachers in my program, reaching out to teachers who respond to emails I send or responding to emails that teachers send me. Matter of fact, I just got an email yesterday from a teacher who's in dire straits around the direction she wants to go as a teacher. I wrote her right back because, hello, she actually said she was inspired to write me because she listens to this podcast. And in one of the episodes, I said, reach out to me if you have a problem I can help you with. And she, she actually wrote me, which I love. And when I responded within like, I don't know, an hour or so of getting the email, she was blown away. She was like, oh my God, I can't believe you actually responded to me. You need to know that obviously I am a real person and I want to talk to you. I respond to emails usually within the hour, definitely the same day. And I'm always amazed, even teachers in my program, when they say, I can't believe you're getting back to me. That's the experience I want you to have when you're working with me. That's the level of care I want you to experience when you work with me, even if you're not paying me, right? Even if you're not in my program, like this particular teacher, I'm going to hop on the phone with her today for free because I want to help her. I want to see if I can help her. I want to help her get into that zone of genius. And down the line, if she ends up wanting to work with me in my program, great. If not, I could have helped her possibly in this one-time session. So number one, if you're out there listening to this and you need help, you have a question, you feel stuck, you feel overwhelmed, just send me a note, right? Send me an email, karen at barebonejoker.com. Send me a DM on Instagram. I will get back to you right away. We'll chat. We'll figure it out. 
But this whole thing in the book, the big leap, and this example I'm giving you, I can totally relate to it. And what I'm just going to say in wrapping up this part of the conversation is that what I did, even before I read this book, is exactly what Gay Hendricks talks about. I basically flipped my schedule. So now when I get up in the morning and I feed the dog and walk the dog, which is always my first thing, which FYI, if you listen to the Huberman Lab podcast, which I am a huge fan of, if you've listened to my show before, you know that I always talk about Dr. Andrew Huberman, the uh, professor of ophthalmology and neurobiology at Stanford. He has talked multiple times on his show about the importance to your circadian rhythm to get out into the, into the fresh air every day, first thing when you wake up. And so if you don't have a dog, you need to do this somehow, not looking out at natural light through your indoor windows, you need to get outside. Luckily, I have a dog. So every day when I get out and walk the dog, I think of Dr. Huberman and I check that off my list. My brain health is now off on the right track. My circadian rhythms are reset, check. So after I go out every day and walk the dog, I used to come in and do this whole morning routine for my health and wellness, write in my journal, do my meditation, go for a run, lift weights, do yoga practice, whatever it is. And I found that it wasn't until 1130 that I was sitting down to do my own stuff. And so what I have decided to do and what I've been doing is I flipped things. So now I do all of that personal wellness stuff in the afternoon and I invest in my own zone of genius activities after I walk the dog for the first chunk of the morning. So making my content doing podcast episodes, recording YouTube videos, doing all that content creation, building the um, the agenda for my monthly workshop that month, any of that sort of brain power work I do in the morning. And then I do my afternoon exercise stuff. And along the way, I might be doing a little thing here or there, collecting the garbage in the house, doing a load of laundry, but I'm not getting waylaid by going, doing grocery shopping or doing yard work or all those kinds of things. I am staying focused on what I want to do. So hopefully you'll pick up some tips here in this part of the conversation. The big leap, I can't emphasize enough how great this book is. I'm almost done with it. The two shows, watch those. And uh, I hope that this part of the conversation has inspired you in, in some way. So today, what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about preparing for class. And again, this particular topic was inspired by these first episodes of Lost Kitchen that I've been watching. Because when you watch the show, if you watch the show, you'll see the level of detail that Erin French gets into when she prepares for her guests to visit and dine at her restaurant. And I know from years ago, especially because I have a catering and personal chef background, I have always considered teaching a yoga class very much like preparing for guests to come over. <coughs> Excuse me. And the level of care and preparation you do not only to yourself, but to the environment makes a tremendous difference in the experience your students will have. And so in this episode here, I want to take a few minutes to go through a number of different things that you can do to prepare to teach for your class. And, you know, make no mistake about it, the preparation that you do will have a direct impact on whether or not your class is eh, just okay, or the experience is really heightened uh, for your students. I don't really wanna get into good or bad because it's not that kind of paradigm. And, and I think that for many teachers, they can have an experience of, oh, that class was awful. However, the students can have an experience of, oh, that class was great. So I don't really wanna get into naming things in that way. Um, however, and keep in mind, the only experience you can really know is your own because you cannot know what their experience is. Even if they tell you, it's sort of colored by who they are. And quite frankly, even your perception of your own experience of teaching that class, it's really hard to be objective. So you have to sort of take all of this with a grain of salt. You know, there's an old Buddhist um, 
it's like a cone. It's kind of like a story, K-O-A-N, I believe is how you spell that cone, um, where there's like a farmer and he has all these things happen to him. His son goes off to war, but then the kid gets injured and he comes home and then the son's home and people are like, oh, sorry that your son had to go off to war. And then he comes home and then they say, oh, sorry that he had to come home because he got hurt. And then he's like, well, it's good that he came home, but it was bad that he left and I'm going to miss him. And all of the stories, like he loses the horse, he gains something else. It just reflects the, the, the moral of the story is it just reflects how we can look at things as good. We can look at things as bad, but it sort of depends on how you view it. Not in a Pollyanna way, but you can always sort of see a good thing as maybe there's some aspect of it as bad and vice versa. So I think it's really, um, it's not really helpful to classify our yoga classes in that way. However, your experience of teaching a class when you are prepared is light years better than when you're not prepared. And I think you probably know this, those moments that you rush in to teach your class, you're really distracted, you're not well-fed, you're not well-rested. Those are not gonna be good classes for you as a teacher. And quite frankly, if you pull your students after, some of them are probably gonna say, you seemed a little scattered. So preparation is really, really important. And quite frankly, especially when you're newer, you really need to look for ways that you can sort of compensate for your lack of experience. And I don't mean that in a, in a derogatory way. It's just kind of a fact, right? You don't have a lot of experience. And so you need to sort of shore up to control the things you can. And I've talked about that on prior episodes, the importance for all of us as yoga teachers to control the things we can control. Because let's face it, when you invite a bunch of people into a room to do a movement-based practice like yoga, there are so many variables that are going to come up that you have no control over and you could have never planned for. So that's why it is critical that you plan for the things you can plan for. And one of the things you can plan for is preparing for the damn class. <laughs> so if your general mode is to just fly in, park your car, run into the studio and be like, okay, I'm here. No, no, no. Every once in a while, I get it. But as a general rule of thumb, absolutely not, cannot happen. You need to, you should, I don't want to say you need to, you should afford this the kind of care that you would if you were having your family over to dinner, if you were having friends over to dinner, the level of care that you would uh, apply to that, you would go shopping, you would plan your, you would plan your menu, you would go shopping, you would set the table, you would cook the food, you would put it out and then the people would come and you'd be fully in the zone. Oh, welcome. You know, you get it, right? Okay. So here are some things that you can do to prepare to teach your class. Number one, get there early, get there early. You live in LA. I've never lived in LA. I hear the traffic is legendary. You know, you live someplace where the traffic is legendary. Legendary. You live in a rural place. You have to take the subway like I did here in Boston when I was teaching live classes before the pandemic. Ah, um, whatever it is, whatever your scenario is, um, you know, that, that whole idea of getting yourself there, allowing time for that is super, super important. I know one of the things for me here in Boston was the issue with parking. So you got to allow time for that. That's why I, I can probably count on one hand, the number of times I actually drove to a class. I would always walk because I knew number one, I could walk, uh, because of the proximity to where I live. But I knew that walking was something that always allowed me a way to know exactly how long it was going to take me to get there. And that was really important, not only for me to get there in time, but also so that I didn't waste time. I mean, think about it. You are only getting paid for the time you are teaching the class. So all the prep work you do, you're not getting paid for that, friend. You're not getting paid for that. So quite frankly, you need to minimize how much prep work you do for your class so that you can maximize the revenue you get from teaching the class to cover all of what you do. And you know the revenue has to cover for the teaching. So if you're taking two hours to get to the class or an out, let's be, let's say, let's say you're taking 30 minutes to get to the class, but you're spending three hours the day before preparing or five hours the you know over the days prior to your class preparing, that is not good. You are not getting paid for that. So you need, um, I don't want to say need, it's helpful if you 
cut down on the preparation time required for you to teach so that you can maximize what you get paid to cover the time you've invested in that class. This is more of a business conversation, but it's also businessy and teaching focused. So if you're spending a lot of time preparing for your classes, this is a perfect conversation for you and I to have. I can give you lots of ways to cut down on that time, not because I'm being cheap, but because I want you when you get paid for that class to be able to know that that class covered the most of the time that you are actually doing that teaching, right? So if you're spending a lot of time prior preparing and you want to cut down on that time, contact me. That's a great thing for us to discuss and work on. So preparing, getting there early is important, but I'm not talking an hour early, just allowing yourself appropriate time so that you're not rushing to get there. Number two, have your sequence ready. Unless you're at the point in your teaching where you can just walk in the room and start teaching off the cuff, you're probably going to want to have something that's kind of in your back pocket as your standard sequence and or you're going to want to know prior to going into the room what the focus is going to be for that class. And keep in mind, if somebody tries to hijack your focus, that student that comes up to you before and says, hey, can we focus on core today? Or hey, can you make this class really hard today? I just fucking hate that question. Um, I mean, it's just the spirit of it might not be what I'm reacting to and it, and it really isn't. It's just, Hey, <laughs> I am the teacher here, friend. Like it's not about we're going to do what I want to do. It's just that you're here in a group experience. So in a group experience, you're here to just kind of just do what's presented. It's not a custom valet experience. If you want that, you're going to set up a private session. So that's my little sidebar on that. For you as the yoga teacher, have your sequence ready. And again, don't be waylaid. This probably isn't super common, but don't be waylaid if someone tries to hijack your plan. Just proceed with your plan. Know what your plan is going to be before you get there. Now, the next one is about you, really, really about you. Be well rested, be well fed, be healthy, be centered. Do what you need to do to make those things happen. Of course, there are going to be times where for whatever reason, you can't be doing that. There are lots of different techniques that I can share with you for how you can compensate for that. And I'll just go into one right now. If you know that you are teaching a class and you are very much um, at a loss on one of those levels. You're hungry, you're, what, although hungry is something you can definitely fix easily, just have a power bar or something just quick. But if you are not well rested, if you're highly distracted, any of these issues, the best technique to take for that class is to focus on a simple sequence with just action cues. So don't make things more complicated. Don't teach a complicated sequence and simply use action cues. That's a great way to compensate for the fact that you don't have a lot of energy and you need to keep things simple. In general though, go into your classes and know that you need to be all those things. So you need to do whatever it is you need to do to be those things. And this is also a shout out to having some snacks in your bag, having some liquid in your bag so that you can be sure if you're a little bit hungry, you can take care of things from that perspective. The next thing, number four, is to set up the room. Make sure the room is set up to your liking. If the studio has an assistant or a person at the front desk that's taking care of that for you, you should go into the room and make sure all of that meets with your standards. So take a look at the room, make sure that it does. The next thing is allow yourself time to chat with students as they're coming into the room. So not the kind of thing where you just show up two minutes before and you just plop in there. And now all of a sudden you're like, okay, everybody come into child's pose. Give yourself some time to interact with your students before they're in the room on the mat. And that's a good way to just sort of develop relationships. Maybe if there's any questions beforehand, they can ask them just kind of develop that rapport. Because of course, once they're on the mat and practicing, they're not talking to you. So this is a good way to get some dialogue going back and forth. 
Number six, allow time to shift from check-in to teaching if you're doing check-in. I really, really did not like doing check-in. I really don't think it is an appropriate role for a yoga teacher. And I really um, feel badly for yoga studios who don't have the margins from a financial standpoint to allow for a front desk check-in person. So if you're listening and you own a studio, I feel you if it's difficult for you financially to pay somebody to do check-in. Um, my concern with this is I think it really muddies the water for yoga teachers. Yoga teachers are there to teach classes. People that check in at the front desk are there to run the business. And it's to me, a conflict of interest when the same person teaching the class is also doing the check-in and handling the business. I will say to you, if you are teaching classes where you are also doing check-in, I really think that it's helpful to recognize that you're straddling both roles. And because of that, I believe it's really important if any student has any issue at all, you have absolutely no conversation prior to teaching that is going to ruffle their feathers or is going to manage that particular challenge. If I was ever doing check-in and over 15 years of teaching, I've checked in for a lot of my classes, not by my choice, but out of the need and obviously respect for the studio owners that they could not afford to have someone at the desk. Anytime I did check in, if a student had any issue at all about their class card or they couldn't afford it or whatever the issue was, I would simply say, let me take your name and your email. Why don't you go on in and set up? They were always right in that moment. It was always about getting them into the room because number one, I need to get into the room too. So I don't have time to get into a customer service issue with that person and neither do you. And secondly, it's not my role because I don't own the studio and neither do you, unless you own the studio, in which case you definitely should not be checking in for your own classes. Somebody else should be doing that. Um, and number three, and most importantly, you don't want to energetically muddy the waters by getting into a potential argument with a student and then two seconds later going into class and trying to be a pleasant yoga teacher when this person's probably throwing daggers at you from their yoga mat because you pissed them off by whatever interaction you had with them outside the studio room from a customer service perspective. So if you have no choice and you have to check in for your classes, know that your main role is to get that person as soon as possible into the room, onto their mat and getting into the mental space so that they can practice yoga. All the other stuff is secondary. And at the end of the day, even if you let them into class and there's some issue with their class card or whatever, what is it like 20, 22 bucks? I mean, you can say to the studio, I'll cover it because quite frankly, it was more important for me in that moment to get that person into class. So that's the deal there. One other little side note about this that I'm just inspired to share because this has happened to me as well. If you are checking in for your own classes and you are the only one in the studio, this is again, a super big red flag for me, especially if you're teaching an early morning class, especially if it's in a rural area or an urban area. I always had my radar up when I was asked to check in for classes. I live in Boston, uh, especially if they were early morning classes from a safety perspective. If you are the only one in the room, in the studio, in the building, you need to number one, know an exit strategy if you need to get out quick. Number two, have a plan for if someone gets hurt, how are you going to handle it? Because you don't have somebody as an assistant or a front desk person to call 911 if somebody gets hurt. Number three, if you have a student that gets violent or angry and tries to hurt you, you need to have a way to get out of that space, get around them. The, you know, I don't mean to be over dramatic, friends, but these are the kinds of things that really concern me when, when yoga teachers are basically left to do their own check-in in a room where there's nobody else around. So keep all these things in mind if you are checking in for your own classes and you're the only other person in the building. That means you are the only representative of that business in that building. And especially if it's a freestanding building, like it's not in a strip mall or it's not in a building with other businesses or other people, even more of a concern. So that's the deal there. Number seven, have a water bottle. 
Did you ever have a coughing fit while you were teaching class? Oh my God, I've had these occasionally and it's so awful. So make sure you have a water bottle. If you get a coughing fit, you get you know a tickle in your throat, you need to have that when you are teaching. And also hydration is important. Having said that, having said that, know that taking multiple sips of water during teaching is often a sign that you're nervous. It's often a distracting activity. There's a lot of distracting activities that teachers do, and I'm calling us, myself out here as well, when they feel awkward. The playing with the music, the playing with the lights, the playing with the heat, the drinking water. All of that is usually a tell that there's something else going on underneath the scenes with you, underneath the skin with you, that you're afraid to just move into because it feels uncomfortable. So you're going to do something else. You're going to drink your water. You're going to, you know, mess with your clothing. You're going to go to the wall and play with the lights, whatever. In those moments that you're, that you are um, instinctively reaching for your water, know if you feel that uncomfortable feeling, just let yourself feel that. Just let yourself feel that and just go through it. So I think there's a practical reason to have water. Also know that multiple times drinking water during your class is usually a sign that there's something else going on. And then number eight, the last thing, ways to prepare is take a moment to tell yourself that my focus is now on them. My focus is now on them. I can certainly share over the years when I've gone in to teach classes and I've had a lot going on in my personal life. It was actually a huge relief to go in and teach the class because for 60 minutes, 45 minutes, whatever, an hour and 15 minutes, whatever it was, I didn't have to think about that problem. And my focus was 100% on them. I'm a longtime kid yoga teacher. And this 100% I found to be true. There were many times I would go to teach my kids class and I would be dealing with something in my life. And as soon as I walked into the room, kids are all consuming. And for that hour, I'd be done teaching. And I'd think, oh my God, I didn't even think about that problem, you know, for the last hour. And it was such a relief. So make that recognition that there is that sort of imaginary line. You're in your own mind, but then when you step into the studio, you are there for them. And this also mirrors what I was talking before about Erin French and the Lost Kitchen and how my view of teaching a yoga class, the metaphor I often use is this whole idea of, um, of, preparing for guests to come over for dinner. So those are things to do to prepare for your class. I hope you found this helpful. And I'd love to know what you thought about this list. If you have something that you do that helps you prepare for class, please send me a DM on Instagram and I'll give it a shout out on Instagram to share your good thought. So let me know what kinds of things you have found helpful when you are preparing for class. And then in the last minute or so, or last couple of minutes of this episode, I want to just briefly talk about a second topic, which has to do with somatic cues. I believe in last week's episode, I talked a little bit about anatomy-based cueing and a framework you can use to share those. I want to talk a little bit now about feeling-based cues or somatic cues. So remember, in my way of working with teachers, of coaching teachers, I describe cues as action cues alignment cues, anatomy cues, and feeling-based cues. And you can think of feeling-based cues as also somatic cues. They have to do with the body, the feelings in the body. And as yoga teachers, we can choose what type of cue we're sharing. And I think there is, depending on what kind of teacher you are and who you are as a person and what your training and background is and what the influences are uh, of what the influences are on you as a teacher, you can sort of lean more into the somatic feeling-based cues than the other type cues. Certainly when you come to my classes, you're gonna get a lot of alignment, anatomy, structure, functional movement. However, there are definitely teachers and you may be one of them where a lot of the teaching is very focused on how are you feeling, moving through feelings, release those feelings, all this kind of stuff. So number one, see if you can recognize where you fall on that spectrum. Number two, keep in mind that there's always a balance that we're striving for. 
unless you are teaching a specialty type class where the niche focus is really clear from the type of class it is, like a restorative class or a Sunday evening relax and renew class, Yes, those classes by their nature, by their description are definitely going to be focused on this kind of thing. But in general open flow classes, it's helpful to have a good balance of types of cues because it gives people an opportunity to have the cues match the ebb and flow of the class from an energetic perspective. Here in this uh, part of our conversation, I wanted to just ask you some questions about the types of somatic cues that you're sharing. Are you asking students about how they're feeling in these poses? Because that is a great way to give them an opportunity to turn their focus inward. You know, we've talked a lot in this episode here about focus inward, focus outward. Certainly your yoga students, you want their focus to go inward. Most of us, if not all of us, have such an outward focus all the time because we're so overstimulated by everything happening in the world around us and the damn phone we're always looking at. So it's so important both for neurological development, neuroplasticity, neural brain health, um, inner health on so many different levels that we take time to turn inward. And so when your students are there on the yoga mat, your use of somatic-based cueing is a great way to give them an opportunity to tune into how they're feeling and realize maybe for the first time on that particular day, how the hell they're feeling. Like, isn't that a novel idea? So I wonder if you're using somatic-based cues and how you're using them. Because if you're like some of the yoga teachers whose classes I attend online or that I speak with, sometimes somatic-based cues can sort of seem like they're asking a student how they feel when in actuality, what they're doing is they're really sort of prescribing how they should feel. And this can happen sometimes when you learn a little bit about anatomy and you get really excited because you know the quadriceps extends the knee and you know the glutes extend the hip and you wanna share that information. So your cues start to sound like you should be feeling this and you should be feeling the hamstrings do that and you should be feeling the gastroc do that and you should be feeling, and keep in mind, once we start to box our students into a particular way of experiencing a pose, it doesn't leave them room to experience what they're experiencing. So now we're sort of prescribing rather than allowing, prescribing rather than allowing. And we want to always be allowing. We can inform and then allow. So we can say in this pose, the quadriceps is there to engage and extend to engage in the thigh, to contract in the thigh, which extends the knee. What are you feeling? Here in this pose, the gluteus maximus is lengthening. So this is a great way to stretch your glutes, your glute max, I should say. Is this in line with what you're feeling? What do you notice here? So see how what I'm doing here is I'm providing the info, but then I'm asking the question. So inquiry questions, asking them, how do you feel? What do you notice? What's happening for you in this posture? That in my mind is a much better way to draw people inward, to give them this opportunity to notice, to share somatic base cueing rather than sort of the knee-jerk reaction. And I think a lot of times it comes out of insecurity. Yoga teachers sometimes want to seem like, I know what I'm talking about. So I'm going to say things like, you should be feeling this, and this is happening here. And, and honestly, like we don't need to go in and be the authority. Yes, we want to be confident, but there's a difference between being confident and coming across like you're the authority. Authority in my mind suggests there's a right and a wrong, and there really isn't. In fact, in more ways than one, the more you learn and understand about movement and anatomy, the more you'll, you will realize there is a shit ton of nuance. And it's in that nuance where most of us as yoga teachers spend our time teaching. However, because of the sort of linear training that most yoga teachers get, around anatomy, they think things are very linear. And that leads to cueing in a way where we say things like, you should be feeling this and you should be feeling that. And believe me, I'm a personal trainer as well. And I have a lot of interaction with personal trainers. I watch a lot of videos. I do a lot of ongoing CEU stuff with personal trainers. And I hear it in personal trainers too, almost more than in yoga teachers, because they really have 
the anatomy and physiology background, and they really want to come across as the authority. But even in those scenarios, there's that distinction between what is most likely happening for the student and what the hell they're feeling, right? And so we want to notice those two things. We want to see if those two things are similar or see if there's a discrepancy there. And that's where the inquiry question comes in. That's where the somatic cues come in. That's where the value to your student of you being there as a guide comes in, not as an authority, not as someone who's there to say, this is right, this is wrong, but as a guide, as a facilitator to lead them into their own inner experience so that they can notice turn inward, turn away from the outward. And remember this, I didn't even plan this, but this is a complete reflecting back to what I was talking about at the very beginning in terms of the eight limbs of yoga, that movement through dharana and just getting to that samadhi, right? Working through those eight limbs. This is exactly the path. And in some ways, don't we sort of want every yoga class to allow for that continuum for the student to go through. Like, honestly, I don't script out these episodes ever beyond a short outline. And so these things just spontaneously come through me. This is one of my zones of genius. And that's not something I'm saying to try to put on airs or try to make myself sound self-important. It's to, it's to, describe to you, you know, the fact that I'm ending this episode coming back to a theme that I brought up at the beginning, and it was completely unplanned and completely spontaneous, is a reflection of me being comfortable in sharing with you, of me allowing for inspiration to come through in this moment, of me not being afraid to share what's spontaneously coming to my mind, of me having years of investing in my growth and development so that I have a level of confidence and knowledge from which I can draw upon to share with you and to not be afraid to show myself. So this is all of what I was talking about before when I was talking about the American Idol example and the um, the big leap, the lessons from the big leap that I've come across and Aaron French, it all blends together. And I want you in these final moments of this episode to, to, as you leave this episode, to think about when am I in my zone of genius, especially as it relates to yoga teaching, when am I experiencing something like Karen's describing here on this show right now? When am I experiencing the freedom of being me? When am I feeling inspiration and that feeling of authenticity? What am I doing? What am I saying? What's my way of being as a teacher when I am experiencing that zone of genius paradigm? And that's where you want to spend your time researching and journaling and meditating and writing and visioning, because the more you can define that, the more when you go in to teach your class, you're going to crush it. And again, remember, perception is there. But when you go home at night and you rest your head on the pillow and you say, I love teaching yoga and I love the classes I taught today, make no mistake about it. That is not just because it happened. That's because of all this stuff we're talking about here, the preparation, the understanding your zone of genius, you putting yourself out there. I mean, this is why I coach yoga teachers because I want them to experience that. You may think my program is all about anatomy and it is in part, but it's also about all of this. This is all of what teachers experience when they work with me, because this is all what I experience and what I push myself to go through. And those are the kinds of things that I share with teachers. So in wrapping up this episode, I wish you over the next couple of days, opportunities to sit in stillness, to meditate, to ask yourself these really, really important questions that we've discussed here on this show. And I invite you to contact me if you want to discuss them, if you feel like nothing's coming through, if you feel like the energetic lens is cloudy or the energetic pipes are clogged and you're not sure how to get there, I can help you uncover what your zone of genius is. I can help you do that. So there's no reason for you to be out there going, I'm not able to do this. I'm just going in there and teaching exercise. No, 
you went into teaching yoga because it triggered something in you, a good and beautiful thing. And you want to inspire that in other people. And one of the best ways to inspire other people is to inspire yourself. And through that self process of inspiring yourself, you will inspire others because you will be an example, not a warning. That's what one of my first teachers, Baron Baptiste said. Be an example, not a warning. You don't want people to come to your class and be like, oh my God. You want them to come to your class and be like, oh my God, that person is so inspiring. You want that, right? I mean, who doesn't want that? So you want to be an example, a beacon of light, a connector, a community builder, a person who is authentic, a person who is free, all of those things. And they're all available to you. They're available to me, all those feelings. It's not a mystery to uncover them. You just want to do the work to get there. So I hope you have found this episode helpful. I am like literally sweating. I'm so riled up, but in a good way. And I'd love to hear any thoughts or comments you have about this particular episode. So you can always send me a DM on Instagram or email me at karen at barebonesyoga.com. If you're still listening to this episode, I want to thank you for following me all the way till the end of this episode. Don't forget to listen to the outro. I've got a couple of uh, just comments there. And I will talk to you on the next episode of Conversations for Yoga Teachers. Thanks for listening and namaste. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening to this latest episode. And thank you so much for being part of my community and for spending some time with me here on the show. I wanted to wrap up this episode with just a quick note. I have a brand new recorded workshop page, and I'm really excited to offer you an opportunity to watch recorded workshops whenever you want. I have the first installment of a workshop on the page on the website, and it is a short workshop all about how to give effective cues. And so all you need to do to watch this free workshop is go to my website, barebonesyoga.com, and you'll see the listing in the dropdown for recorded workshops. When you click that page, you'll see on that page the link to sign up to watch that recorded workshop. I'll be adding more workshops in the future to this page. And it's a way that you can access educational and growth information for teachers without having to make a workshop at a particular time. I love to get together with teachers live, both in person and of course online, which is where I'm doing most of my interaction with teachers right now. However, I appreciate that sometimes people can't make a workshop or the time doesn't work for them or they're in a different time zone. So I want you to know that this page can be a resource for you so that as you're out there and you have questions about different things, or you have maybe a half an hour or 45 minutes that you want to devote to your continuing education as a teacher, you can just go to my website, pull up this recorded workshops page, and there will be resources there for you to take a look at. And all of the workshops that I share are all designed at number one, giving you information, and number two, giving you the skills that come from getting that information. It doesn't do you any good if I'm just giving you information on anatomy. If I don't show you how you can use it in your teaching to grow as a teacher, to grow your impact, then it's really not very useful. So all my workshops will have that dual focus sharing a little bit, and then showing you how to apply it. So I hope you'll check that out. If you have any questions or feedback, definitely let me know. Just send me an email, karen at barebonesyoga.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show, and I look forward to hearing from you. Namaste.